It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. If you have your Bibles, Ezekiel uh, 30, I just lost the chapter, Uh, 48, Ezekiel 48. And uh, excited to get into this one. Uh, We're looking at the name Jehovah Shammah, which is the Lord is there. And uh, just been really deeply encouraged and blessed by just this idea or this concept uh, that's in the very end of Ezekiel. Uh, Just to set up the stage uh, for for even the the concept, uh, I want to give a quick background of Ezekiel uh, because the very last verse is where we're going to be. Uh, of, of, the, of the book, <clears throat> and obviously you need to understand the book if you understand where Ezekiel's heading or taking all this. I want to just give one verse and then kind of give a quick overview. But in Ezekiel 10, verse 18, it says that the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. It's interesting that what you have in Ezekiel is there's, there's several things going on. Uh, the time of Ezekiel is not well. It's, it's actually not good. Ezekiel obviously is in Babylonian captivity. He's talking about the fact that here's Jerusalem, it's been destroyed, and literally the glory of the Lord has literally departed from the, the city. And there's, there's a yearning happening in the people uh, for what God is doing in his holy city. So look at what Nathan Stone writes about just this quick overview of Ezekiel, especially in relationship to the name Jehovah Shammah. Uh, he says this, <clears throat> the name Jehovah Shammah is found in the last verse of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel began his prophecies at a time when the nation, the nation of Israel was at the lowest ebb of its history, spiritually and nationally. The sun of its strength and glory had long set, and the night was fast closing in. Every one of his prophecies was uttered in captivity, where he had been taken several years before, several years before the destruction of Jerusalem. The last great vision and prophecy was uttered in the 25th year of the captivity and 14 years after Jerusalem had fallen the temple destroyed, and only a poor, miserable remnant left in the land. Israel's spirit was broken, and Ephraim's crown of pride was laid low low in the dust. It appears they had been delivered from bondage in Egypt, only to go into bondage in Babylon. By the rivers of Babylon, the psalmist tells us they sat and they wept and they remembered Zion. Song had departed from them. They hung their harps upon the willows. How shall we sing Jehovah's song in a strange land? Ezekiel now brings this prophecy of hope and consolation that predicts the restoration of land and people in a measure far beyond anything they had ever experienced in the past or could have imagined. The pledge of all of this is in the name Jehovah Shammah. Jehovah is there. And he concludes by saying this. The Jehovah who had departed from the old temple, desecrated by abominations of his people, and destroyed by his judgments, now returns by the same way into a new and glorious city and temple, purged of all the old abominations and oppressions and characterized by righteousness, justice, and holiness. The glory of Jehovah would fill this new place, and his presence would dwell and abide there forever. So get the yearning in the passage. Uh, Here is this really bad state in, in the time of Ezekiel. And he's looking at the fact that here is the city, Jerusalem, and it's like all of the glory had departed. Judgment has come to Jerusalem. But as you get to the very end of Ezekiel, there's these incredible promises. Uh, I love chapter 47. I, I love the Valley of the Dry Bones stuff. I love, there's these great 
declarations at the end of Ezekiel. But look at how Ezekiel finishes in the very last verse. He says in Ezekiel 48, verse 35, that the city shall be 18,000 cubits round about, and the name of that city from that day shall be Jehovah Shema, Yahweh is there. And so you get this beautiful idea that though the glory has departed, even though the judgment has come upon the city, God says, I'm actually going to restore that, and it's actually going to be known as I'm there. And look at what uh, Ann Spengler says about this. Strictly speaking, she says, Yahweh Shema is a name for a city rather than a title of God. But it is so closely associated with God's presence and power that it has often been equated with a name for God. And so as we look at this idea of one of his names, one of his names is the fact that he is there. He's there in the presence. He's dwelling amongst his people, which is actually a phenomenal thought that God longs to dwell among his people. And you actually see patterns or you see these ideas all throughout the Old Testament that God is longing to be with his people. God is longing to dwell with his people. That there's this burning within him that says, I, I don't want to just be a, a distant God. I don't want to just view from, uh, you know, from over there. I actually want to be amongst you. Uh, for example, in Genesis chapter 3, uh, this is the garden scene that Adam and Eve had just sinned. And it says that, that Adam and Eve heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. And Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Isn't it a neat thought that here's God walking in the cool of, of the day, you know, in the garden. And he's longing for that dwelling. He's longing for that relationship. He's longing to be with his people. But now there's a problem, sin. And what you begin to find is that God had this rich dwelling called humanity, that, that God made Adam and Eve in his image, and they were to the image and showcase the glory of God, that they were going to be the vessels or the tabernacles, if you will, of the presence of the Lord, that God breathed into them. But yet because of sin, there's now a separation of the dwelling place. And so you see God yearning to be in or amongst his people. Uh, in Exodus 25, it says that Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak with the sons of Israel so that they take a contribution for me. <clears throat> From every man whose heart is willing, you shall take my contribution and let them make a sanctuary or a tabernacle for me. Why? That I may dwell among them according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall make it. So think about this. Here's, here's a time of Exodus and they're, they're in the wilderness and God says, okay, I want you to take up a collection and I want you to build a tabernacle. Why? Because I want to dwell with my people. I want to tabernacle with them. I want to dwell in their midst. And it's interesting, I'm going to come back to this, but God gives Moses a very distinct pattern for that tabernacle, for that dwelling place, that, that it's going to look like something. He's patterning, patterning it after something else. I'll come back to that. That word dwell, that he wants to dwell amongst his people, the word dwell, this is neat, means to reside, to indwell, to settle, to rest, to be enthroned, to abide, or to live. Do you know what God wants to do with his people? That. He wants to reside and dwell, settle, to rest, be enthroned, to abide, and to live amongst and within his people. In Exodus 29, verse 45, God says that I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. 
In Exodus 33, verse 14 and 15, it says that Yahweh said to Moses, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. Isn't that neat? Just that dwelling idea. Then Moses said to Yahweh, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. Do you hear Moses' longing? God says, I, I will leave you and I will give you rest. And Moses says, okay, good. But if you don't go with us, if you're not dwelling with us, don't leave. we're not going. Because we, we will only go if your presence is here. Uh, in Leviticus 26, verse 12, God says, I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 21, it says, you shall not dread them. This is Moses speaking and encouraging the Israelites. For Yahweh, your God, is in your midst a great and fearsome God. What, what, what is God? He's really dwelling amongst. He's in the midst of Israel. Uh, in Psalm 132, verse 13 and 14, the psalmist says, for Yahweh has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation or his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will inhabit, says Yahweh, for I have desired it. So you get this idea that God has longed to dwell amongst his people, that he's longing back for that relationship that he had with Adam and Eve prior to sin. Uh, it's interesting, Solomon, he's dedicating a temple. Uh, so, you know, for all these years, we've, we've had a tabernacle for, for about 500 years uh, since the time of Moses. And then, you know, now here's the time of David and Solomon and, and Solomon rebuilds or sorry, builds the temple and really elevates what was happening in the tabernacle to another level. And as he's dedicating the tabernacle, Solomon asks, sorry, as he's dedicating the temple, Solomon asks this question in first Kings chapter eight, verse 27, but will God truly dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house, which I have built. I don't know if you get the question, but Solomon's saying, okay, God, I just built this incredible temple, this dwelling place for you. And yet, if the highest heavens cannot contain you, surely this little house cannot contain you, which is a beautiful thought. So hold on to that too. Uh, look at what Ezekiel 37 says, verse 27. <clears throat> In Ezekiel, God says, my dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God, and they will be my people. As you work through the Old Testament, you start to see these hints, these ideas that God is longing to dwell amongst his people. You see it in the fact that God was in the fire by night and the cloud by day. Uh, you see it in the tabernacle. You see it in the temple. You see it in this, the idea that the angel of the Lord went and spoke with all these people throughout the Old Testament that God is longing for some sort of a engagement and a habitation, if you will. Do you realize that this ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ? That, that when you look at this idea that God is wanting to dwell, a, this, this locale, a, a place to dwell or inhabit, you find that in its fruition in Jesus Christ. Here is a man, right? He's God himself, right? He's Yahweh, come in the flesh. But here is this man that now is the dwelling place of Almighty God. The only sinless man now is showcasing what a dwelling place is supposed to look like. And so as you come into the New Testament then, you, you see that Jesus is the climactic reality of the dwelling place. In Colossians, look at what Paul writes. He says, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Isn't that beautiful? 
that here is the God who wants to be there to be amongst his people. So what does God do? Yahweh actually comes in the flesh. And here is Jesus, who is God himself, and the fullness of Yahweh pleased to dwell in Christ, in this physical form, in in this physical body, in this tent, if you will. Uh, In John chapter 1, this is how John says, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or look at how Matthew says, he says, Now all of this took place in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, and this is a quotation of Isaiah chapter 7 and 8, but here's the prophet the prophecy, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So do you realize that Jesus coming in the flesh, that Yahweh God in human form, do you realize that that is a fulfillment of this name, Jehovah Shammah, that he is Emmanuel. God has now dwelt with us that he is the high and lifted one, high and lifted up one, and yet he's humbled himself to take on the form of a mere mortal, a mere man. And now in the life of Christ is the fullness of the Godhead. Now in Jesus, all of God pleased to dwell. The Lord is there in one little beam. I think it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Look what Nathan Stone wrote in his books on the the names of God. He says, The one who in the Old Testament came in occasional mysterious appearance as the angel of Jehovah, the angel of his presence, the angel of the covenant, the angel in whom is Jehovah's name, became, became in Christ both the presence itself and the temple in whom the presence resided, so that in him and of him it could be said, Jehovah Shema, Jehovah is there. I want you to ponder this. When, when God gave Moses the pattern for the tabernacle, do you realize it was a pattern after something? And when you actually study out the tabernacle, do you realize that the pattern of the tabernacle and all the dimensions and the colors and the, the, the items in the tabernacle, all of that was a pattern of something. What was it pointing to? Jesus. That the dwelling place of God on earth, the tabernacle, actually was a pattern of a greater dwelling place of God on earth, Jesus. And what you begin to find is that the tabernacle is a beautiful physical portrayal of a greater reality known as Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the full expression of the tabernacle. Does that make any sense? The dwelling place. That, that, there's, that as in the tabernacle, there's one entrance in, right? The east gate. And Jesus says, I am the gate. In fact, no one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way in. Then in the tabernacle, right, you, you, have the, uh, you have the bronze altar and you have the laver the, for, the, for the cleansing and the sacrifice. And the writer of Hebrews says, do you not realize that he's not just the sacrifice, but he is the high priest? And, and he's everything that the tabernacle points to. That The writer of Hebrews says that the veil of the temple or the tabernacle is the flesh of Christ. Right? That, that he is the bread, the, show, the table of showbread. That he is the light of the world. The, the, the candle opera or the menorah, right? That, that he is the, the mercy seat because he is mercy itself. That as you begin to walk through the tabernacle, 
that the pattern that God gave Moses wasn't just like this blueprint. It's like, I, I really like a house this size. That the blueprint that God gave Moses was a picture of Jesus. Intent form. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Why? Because the tabernacle is a picture of the dwelling place of God. God is there. God is in our midst. God is amongst us. And now here is Jesus. And who is Jesus? He's the dwelling place. He is the tabernacle in, in human form. He's God with us. He is Jehovah Shammah. I think that is incredible. If you guys are awake this morning, good morning. Here's a question then, and I've been, I'm, for some reason this has been a high horse uh, lately, but what was the purpose of the cross? I think for a lot of people in the church, the purpose of the cross was, oh, I get, I get to be forgiven, I, I, get, you know, I get heaven, which is true, so I don't want to downplay that because that's incredible, but I don't think that's the purpose of the cross. Uh, William Law, the old Puritan, uh, wrote in his book that the purpose of the cross wasn't merely forgiveness. The purpose of the cross was Pentecost. That God has a bigger agenda than just your forgiveness. And, and praise the Lord for forgiveness. So I'm not downplaying forgiveness. Praise the Lord for forgiveness. I mean, I'm very thankful for my forgiveness. But you realize that if all God wanted was forgiveness, you know, I'll say it this way. His end goal wasn't merely the forgiveness. God wanted to forgive you so that something. Which is really important to figure out the so that. So here I am full of sin. God wants to do something in my life. What does he want to do? Do you realize that he wants to dwell within me? That he wants to create, use this flesh as the new tabernacle for his presence. In this day. Well, what's standing in the way? Sin. So what's God going to do? Well, God's going to have to deal with all that sinful stuff so that he can now have a vessel through which he can inhabit. So what is the holy God going to do? Here's the holy God of the universe who leaped off of his throne, came down, lived as a man, died on a cross, not just to forgive us of our sins, though that would have been phenomenal by itself, but he forgave you of your sins so that he now has a place to inhabit. And again, as William Law said, the purpose of the cross, though forgiveness is incredible, the purpose of the cross was so that now he can cleanse you, so now that he can fill you. And now the outside God wants to live on the inside through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. And now you get to be the habitation for the very presence of God himself. And you are now, just as the land of promise was a picture of the, of the promise that God had for his people. Now, the new covenant says, "Woo! there is the promise of the Father, which is all about the Holy Spirit. It's the, it's the promise of the believer that you get to be the dwelling place of the living God. And he wants to tabernacle in you. In fact, if, if you would read through uh, John chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17, the whole thundering message of, that, of the upper room scene is that message. Jesus says, hey guys, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. Hey guys, I'm going to the cross. Why? Because I'm going to send forth the promise of the Father and now you, you are going to be the dwelling place of the living God. And then as he gets into chapter 17, I love what he says in his, his uh, high priestly prayer. In John 17, toward the end of it, he says, he's, he's, again, he's praying to the Father, but he says, oh, that they, speaking of his disciples, that they may all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, get this, that they also may be in us, 
so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, and I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. And I wish we had time just to explore that one passage because it is so phenomenally rich. But do you realize that there should be such a beautiful unity in the body of Christ? Why? Because we are one in Christ Jesus. And, and Jesus says, oh, Father, just as you and I are one, hey, would you let them be one? And in fact, let them be one not only together as the body of Christ, but let them be one in us. And so, hey, Father, I am in you. You are in me. I am in them. They're in me. There is a phenomenal reality of the Christian life that I am in Christ and Christ is in me, just as Christ is in the Father and the Father is in him. And it's all through the working of the Holy Spirit. We are the dwelling place of the Most High, folks. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, do, do you not know that, that you are a sanctuary, a tabernacle of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Or as he says in, in 2 Corinthians 6.16, he says, or, or what agreement has a sanctuary of God with idols? For we are a sanctuary or a tabernacle of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Or, or look at what Paul says <clears throat> to the church in Ephesus. <clears throat> he says, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Do you realize what we are in the church? As the body of Christ, we are the dwelling place of the Most High. That the Spirit of the Lord lives in us. And we have that because of the cross of Christ. And just as the Lord was there in a tabernacle, and it came as the pattern of the tabernacle in Christ Jesus, so now we are the very house, the presence, or the, or the tabernacle for the presence of the living God. Uh, let me just read another quote by Nathan Stone. He says, Like Israel of old, the church as a whole, as the body of Christ, is also called the habitation of God. Of the true church, it can be said, Jehovah is there. Speaking of the Gentiles, Paul calls them no more strangers, but fellow citizens together with believing Jews, with the saints and of the household of God, built on the same foundations of the apostles, the prophets, and Christ, the chief cornerstone. That was all from Ephesians 2. He describes it as a building fitly framed, growing into a holy temple into the Lord, a habitation of God in the Spirit, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. God promised his abiding presence to his church, Matthew 28, 20, being present even where two or three should be gathered in his name, Matthew 18, verse 20. Uh, in the middle of the upper room scene, uh, Jesus gave an illustration of what this dwelling, this, this relationship thing looks like, and he used vine and branches. And, and listen to what Jesus said in John 15. He says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Earlier in chapter 14, Jesus says, do you, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come and I'm going to abode with you. I'm going to abide with you. I'm going to dwell with you. And the root word of the word dwell, that idea of to, to, to dwell, to tabernacle, is, is the word abide. What, what is God's big heart? What, what is his desire? God desires to dwell 
amongst and within his people. And in Ezekiel, you see that clearly in the sense that he is Jehovah Shammah. He's Yahweh there, who is there. And yet now he wants to do that in his people. So let me just talk about our lives really quick. Does my life, does your life require the presence of God? I've been, I've been really wrestling with this question. Because in the modern church, it seems like the way that the modern church is living, we're living as if it's all based on my intellect, my ability, my talent, my strength, my resource, my something. And yet, do you recognize that the gospel declares you can't do it? You'll never be smart enough. You'll never be good-looking enough. You'll never be more talented enough. You'll never have enough strength. You'll, you'll, you can't do this. The, the standard is just way too high. So what if in my life, in order for me to live my life, what, what would have happened if for me to actually live the Christian life, it demanded the presence of the Lord in my life? And that the only explanation for my life was actually Jesus. See, wouldn't it be interesting if Ezekiel 48 verse 35 the name of that city from that day shall be Yahweh is there. What if that's what was said about my life? That when the world looked at this quote-unquote city known as Nathan, what if they said, oh, do you know what that place is called? Yeah, God is there. Because God has so infused himself in the weakness and the inability of Nathan that God is now pulling off something that Nathan cannot do so now, when you look at Nathan's life, it's not Nathan that we see. He is so decreased, and Christ is being seen. See, wouldn't it be interesting? Uh, let, me, let me ask it as a question. Does my life and the activity, and there's my actions, do they depend on the presence and the power of God? In other words, if you look at how you live your life, are you living in such a way that it is so impossible that you literally, it literally requires the presence of God to live that way? Are you walking in such a purity that it requires God's presence and power for you to walk in that kind of purity? Are you walking with such faith and boldness and trust and confidence in Christ that it demands his presence and his enabling power through the Spirit of God, through his grace in your life to live that way? Uh, I couldn't find the reference, but A.W. Tozier it's, was reportedly... It was said of Tozer. No, no, I didn't say it that way. Tozer supposedly said this, though I couldn't find the reference. Is that better? So Tozer supposedly said this. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church or the early church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. That's really convicting. And by the way, that was written in the mid-1900s. So if that was true of Tozier's day, I feel like it'd be ever, probably it'd be a higher percentage <laughs> of our day. And okay, let's get out of the church thing. What about your own life? If you didn't have the presence of God enabling you to live, how much would actually continue? Like, like how much of your life is actually dependent upon the presence of God in your life? There's this really scary passage to me in the book of Judges, and it's in the story of Samson and Delilah. And you know the story. Uh, Samson falls in love, love with Delilah, which is not a good thing. And Delilah starts enticing him. Hey, tell me the secret of your strength. And of course, he's like, ha, 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 you know, and tells, tells her all these little lies. And, and she's, finally she gets frustrated, and it says that he's annoyed unto death, which 
by the end of that story, you are too. And, and Delilah's like, seriously, come on, just tell me what is the secret of your strength? And he's like, okay, finally, you're going to kill me here, woman. Uh, no razor has ever touched my head. And so, you know, she, he falls asleep and she shaves his head, which he should have known because every time that she, he told the secret, she would do it, right? So he's, he's obviously blinded by something. And love in the story, right? Uh, anyway, he, he's, just, he's in this stupor. And she cuts off his hair. And let's get, l- listen to what she says. Like before, she says, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and he said, Oh, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. Here's the scary part. But he did not know that Yahweh had left him. I have pondered that over the years. Do you know how scary that had to have been? That something... How, that he did not recognize the departure of the presence of God in his life. That, that he, had, he, he was so confident that he was so just doing his thing, that he's just like, yeah, I'll just do like what I normally do. But he did not recognize that what actually enabled his strength, the presence of God himself through the Spirit, actually had departed. Do you know what a scary thought that would be in our day? for you to do your Christian thing and for you to go through the motions and for you to know when to stand up and when to sit down and for you to have all this religion and not recognize that the Spirit may have departed. See, I want to live in such a way that is so dependent on the presence of God that I know that I cannot live without the presence and the power of God in my life through His enabling Spirit. See, is it possible to live so so dependent upon God himself that my life would not function outside of his presence being there? One of my favorite quotes is by Ian Thomas. and Listen to what Ian Thomas says. He says, The Christian life can be explained only in terms of Jesus Christ. And if your life as a Christian can still be explained in terms of you, whether it be your personality, your willpower, your gift, your talent, your money, your courage, your scholarship, your dedication, your sacrifice, or your anything, then although you may have the Christian life, you are not yet living it. And then he goes on and says, it has got to become obvious to others that the kind of life that you are living is beyond all human explanation, that it is beyond the consequences of man's capacity to imitate And however little they may understand this, it is clearly the consequence only of God's capacity to reproduce himself in you. In other words, what Ian Thomas is saying is, what would happen if you realize that the Christian life is not based on you? It's not based on your ability and your wisdom and your resource and your strength and your anything. The Christian life can only be lived by Jesus Christ through the indwelling of his spirit in your life. And he says, wouldn't it be amazing if the only explanation for how you are living was Jesus? That it literally was causing causing the world to be dumbstruck when they looked at your life saying, I don't know how you live. How how is it that you walk in peace? How is it that you walk in love? How is it that you you can live triumphant above sin? Surely there must be a God because that is the only way I can explain how you are living. And if we live that way, Ian Thomas says, oh, we'd have to call you a Christian. Because that's how a Christian lives. See, does your life, does my life require the presence and the power of God? Wouldn't it be neat if Ezekiel 48 verse 35 
that the name of your city, the name of your life, that the description of how you lived was, oh, Yahweh, Jesus, is there. That when someone looked at our lives, they just went, oh, I, I get it. I, 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 it makes sense now. It's not you. It's him. And he is the reason for why you are living the way that you are living. Uh, really quick, just as a practical, I want to give you seven quick things. If we are the dwelling place of God, if we are the dwelling place of God through his spirit, then there are these seven aspects that are going to be very true in our lives. No, number one, you will have the fullness of joy. As Psalm 16 verse 11 says, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy and in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you realize that wherever he dwells, there is the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Uh, number two, your life will be flowing with the fruit. Uh, Galate, or sorry, John 15, verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. And Paul says in Galatians 5, the fruit of that spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Your life will flow with fruit. Number three, you will have fearless peace. In other words, you will not fear and you'll be flooded with his presence, his, his peace. Hebrews 13, verse five and six, for Jesus himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say then, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? If God has looked at you and says, hey, I promise you, I will never leave or forsake you. If that was true, we would go, oh, oh, okay. There's no reason to fear. Uh, there's no reason to worry. There's no, no reason to walk in trepidation. Why? Because his presence is with me. That, that I could actually be fearless in the days in which I live. Look at what Paul says in Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That as, as Ephesians uh, chapter 2 verse 14 says that Jesus himself is peace and where he is you will experience peace so if you are the habitation if you are the dwelling place of God then won't we experience his peace his life that rest that fearless peace in the days in which we live uh, number four you'll have faithful friendship and intimacy uh, John 15 15 says no longer do I call you slaves for the slave does not know what his master is doing but I have called you friends for all things that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And then in John 17, verse 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. And I've talked about this before, but that word for know, to know him, uh, is not just informational, it's relational, it's intimate, it's, it's, it's experiential. And you recognize that, that if I am his dwelling place, then I get to have a rich relationship, intimacy, experience, uh, this oneness with Christ Jesus in my life. That it's not just God's over there. I actually, just as Moses spoke with God face to face in the tent of meeting, now I get to have that inside because Christ lives in me. And number five, and these are in no particular order, by the way. Uh, I, I, if I'm the dwelling place of the Lord, I experience freedom from sin and death. As Romans 8 says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free 
from the law of sin and death. If I am his dwelling place, do you realize that I can fight triumphantly? As Romans 8, verse 37 through 39 declares, but in all of these things, we overwhelmingly conquer, or as other translations say, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And do you realize that if you are the dwelling place of God, you will find everything that you need? And I quote this passage probably in every teaching session I give, but 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4 seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Do you realize that everything you need for life and godliness is found in Christ Jesus? And now you have become the habitation, the dwelling place, the, the tabernacle of God Almighty, which means everything you need is found in him. Now, you realize that that's not the full list. That's just the tippity top of the iceberg of what you get to experience as the dwelling place of the Lord. But can I just remind us, uh, everything that I mentioned is your benefit. And ultimately, this is not actually about you, it's about him. So though I get all the benefit, even though I receive, just I, I, get, I get all this blessing if I am the, the habitation, the dwelling place of God, do you realize that ultimately this is not about me and what I get from this. This is about him and his glory and his majesty and, and his, the, 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 his uh, de declaring himself once again through his people. That, that just as God made humanity in his image so that the world can see what God looks like lived out in a human flesh, do you realize he wants to do that now through you and I? That, that I get to be the image bearer of the living God and when the world sees my life, they just go, woo, Yahweh is there. That the only explanation for your life is Jesus. And wouldn't it be neat if your life became this praise anthem that literally declared who he is, that, that your life became from him and through him and to him for his glory? as Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six, 36. I mean, wouldn't it just be phenomenal if, if the world looked at you and they just saw and beheld the majesty of Jesus Christ, if they were just dumbstruck by his glory and honor and praise, not because you are anything in and of yourself, but because he is everything in you. That I am weak and, and, and I am helpless and I am insufficient, but him and his overwhelming sufficiency, glory, honor, and praise and power came to invade my life so that he can once again use this tabernacle known as your life to showcase himself to the world. We call that Christianity. Isn't that incredible? Uh, one of my favorite passages over the years has been Ezekiel 36.23. And I just, just listen to this in closing. God says, I will magnify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, that you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, de declares the sovereign Lord, when I magnify myself among you in their sight. I love that idea. 
here's God speaking through Ezekiel saying, people, the nations have profaned my name. In fact, you have profaned my name. That you've lived in rebellion and sin, you've shook your fist in my face. And yet, God says, I'm going to do something in and through you that when I get done, and I, I'm going to really vindicate is what one translation says. I'm going to demonstrate is what another translation says. I'm going to showcase. I'm going to prove. I'm going to magnify the holiness of my name through you. In other words, I'm going to do something in your life that so radically changes your life that it's going to testify and magnify the holiness of my name in the midst of the nations. Wouldn't it be neat if God does that in our lives in this generation? And you could say, well, yeah, but I, I've, sh I've shook my fist in rebellion and sin. I know, we all have. But because of the cross of Christ, you're not just merely forgiven. You've been forgiven so that he can now indwell you with his very presence. And wouldn't it be incredible that though we have profaned his name amongst the nations, that now he uses our lives as the vessel, the means through which he's going to showcase and demonstrate and prove and vindicate and magnify the holiness of his name amongst the nations so that the nations will know that he is Yahweh alone. That's phenomenal, folks. Here's Ezekiel at the very end of Ezekiel saying, Jerusalem, that city that was judged because of its sin, God's going to return and do something in that city, and that city's name is going to be Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is there. Is it possible that God wants to do that in our lives? That he does such a deep work in our lives, he begins to change and transform everything about us, that he begins to produce his holiness and righteousness within us so that what was known as a place of judgment, known as a place of rebellion, actually becomes the place of, where Yahweh is there, where the only explanation for my life becomes Jesus. And then now God uses my life as this tabernacle, this dwelling place of the Lord, to literally showcase the honor, the glory, the renown of his name to the nations. And the nations will know that he is God. Why? Because they see him in me. We need that in this generation. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you that we get to be the habitation of the living God. That we don't become God. We get to be the vessels filled with God. Lord, that changes everything in our lives. Lord, we, we can be triumphant over sin. We, we can always walk in peace and joy and life and love. Lord, Lord that, that, that means that, that I can, in the midst of sin and temptation, I can walk triumphantly. Lord, that I, I can grow in ever greater intimacy and oneness with you in relationship. And, and Lord, everything that I need for life and godliness is found in you, the one who indwells me. Lord, is it possible that just as Jerusalem was known as a place where Yahweh was there, Lord, is it possible that my little life can be known as a place that Jesus is there? Lord, as, as a habitation of your spirit, could, could you do something so radical in, in my, my thought life and my attitude and my actions and, 
the very depths of my being and my motives. And Lord, could you do something so transformative in me that it's, it's not me living my life for Christ, it's you living your life in and through me. Lord, would you come in the, in the strength of your spirit and Lord, would you cleanse, would you purge this, this tabernacle, this temple? Lord, don't allow sin to remain. Don't allow the, the buying of, of sheep and cattle and doves. Don't, don't allow the money changer thing to happen in this dwelling place because this dwelling place is a place for you to dwell. And Lord, will you just so richly do something in my life? Would you keep pulling me deeper? The same intimacy that Moses had in the dwelling place. Lord, could I have that with you in this dwelling place? And just as you tabernacled amongst your people in the wilderness and just as the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus, Lord, could you take your life and, and do that within me? And Lord, though I have profaned your name and though I have shook my fist in rebellion towards you, Lord, would you magnify, would you vindicate, would you prove, would you demonstrate the holiness of your great name by doing that in me. And somehow could the nations know that you are God because they see you in me. And would you take my life and would you take my lips and would you use them as, as, a, as, a, as a mouthpiece, as, as a declaration to once again show forth your life to this world. Lord, thank you that you came and tabernacled amongst us but Lord, thank you so much more as you declared in John 14 that you want a tabernacle within us. Lord, you are Jehovah Shema, the place where the Lord is. Thank you that we have the privilege of being the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. We love you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.